I don't know if you knew that I lost my voice. My wife was very happy not to have to listen to me for about three and a half days. <laughs> not really, but we went out to California, of course, immediately after I learned that my father had died, and it was a very stressful few days, as you might imagine. On the very first day after we learned of his death, I was held on the telephone in here for about nine solid hours. And I finally found that my arm wouldn't even straighten out. I'd try to straighten out this arm and change ears every now and then and then drink liquids. But by the time the press conference had uh, taken place out in California and then I'd had to preach on the Sabbath and go to the stressful funeral to meet all of these people and everything on my father's funeral on the following day, by that night my voice completely quit and I had the worst case of swollen tonsils that I have ever seen in my life. It actually turned blue back there and was about to strangle me. My soft palate got about two inches long and was trying to get down my throat, and I was gagging around. It was awful. Anyway, I couldn't even talk about three and a half days till after I got back here, but finally I have about 80% of my voice back, so for the 20% that is missing, I thought I'd explain that part. The sermon that I gave in Pasadena on the Sabbath following my father's death is available on tape, and I have written a letter I think many of you have already received. I do not want to repeat that at this time, but if you do want to hear that sermon, I think you could probably get a copy of that tape before you left the building today if you ask uh, the appropriate person for it. Well, we were all very, very horrified and very shocked by the events of this past week. I know we heard of the explosion of the shuttle with its astronauts aboard within about 10 minutes of the occurrence and rushed in here to look at the television and of course they repeated endlessly the picture of the explosion and then all the events of the commemoration or commemorative services memorial services around the country and especially I think only yesterday the very large one down at the Johnson Space Center where President Reagan and Nancy Reagan attended one thing about President Reagan that I think you can admire and respect. The man genuinely feels. He doesn't act when it is a time like that. He actually feels, and he does feel, for people. I couldn't help but reflect, as I saw some of the people in the audience, what the different reaction might have been had the President of the United States been, say, Teddy Kennedy of what might have come forth from his mouth of the feeling that he may have been able to communicate to the suffering relatives of these people who died so horribly as we saw the faces of the parents of the one uh, teacher, Krista, you know, and they were watching in one moment's elation and excitement and joy and the next moment just horror and disbelief and unfortunately there were television cameras right on their faces as they were watching this huge uh, flying bomb taking off and then saw it disintegrate in space at first not wanting to believe it and trying to encourage one another and you watch this and it's absolutely heartbreaking you just can't understand what these people are going through it was a very moving ceremony I watched a good part of it probably about three times yesterday with the four T-33s and the one that zoomed up, if you don't know the significance of that, when uh, one of the pilots or an astronaut has died and it's in a memorial service for some person who has died, the Air Force will always have a formation of four aircraft with one missing. And when it showed the one pulling up as if to go to the heavens and the other three continuing on, it was symbolic of that fact. That was right down here in Houston. Quite a few thousand people attended, and the entire nation is in mourning. All the flags out where I live are flying at half-mast, and I think on government buildings and uh, post offices and businesses around the country. From the time I was a little boy, I was very impressionable 
and I probably, like anybody else, was a hero worshiper. My heroes when I was five, six, and seven were Tom Mix and a strange name called Hopalong Cassidy. That's a weird name when I stopped to think about it, but it didn't sound weird to me then. And uh, the Lone Ranger, I heard him on the radio from the time I was only about four, five, and six, and I remember so well the, the uh, little Philco or whatever it was, rail, uh, radio, we'd press our ears to it and try to hear the Lone Ranger, and I'd watch the, the uh, kind of a pattern on the Persian carpet and the fantastic fantasy, the, the, the pictures, the scenes that would be painted in your mind just by sound effects and by radio were as vivid to a boy that age as going to a complete, you know, Technicolor motion picture would be today, I imagine. By the time I was up in my early teens, we were involved in World War II, and my heroes then became anybody in a uniform. I would take all of my big little books and my comic books and these great big long, miles-long convoys would go right by the main highway where I lived up toward the port in Portland, Oregon, where they were being shipped overseas to fight the Japanese, and I would go out there and toss my comic books to the soldiers or the Marines going by in their trucks and open jeeps. And I just a little kid, I'd pick roses and toss them to them, and I just, even to see these guys in their uniforms going by, my heart was beating, and I was very patriotic, it was very exciting to be able to see them go by. By the time I was somewhat older and was in the Navy myself, my heroes became admirals and captains and officers, four-stripers, people with gold braid, and to be able to be just close to those people and to talk to them and have them speak to you by name was a very... Uh, honorable, very exciting kind of thing to happen. Still later on, my heroes became famous basketball and football players, or perhaps at some points of time in my life, movie actors or actresses. And had I had the opportunity, I imagine, when I was an impressionable teenager to run up and get Doris Day's autograph, because I was very infatuated with Doris Day. I thought she was the most beautiful thing that had ever come along, loved her voice, when I was standing watch aboard a gun director on an aircraft carrier off Korea, I just about wore the grooves completely out on some of those little 45 RPM records of listening to Doris Day sing. I only had a couple of them. I played them interminably, you know, eight hours at a time on watch and uh, would listen and get all wistful and kind of fantasize about Doris Day. Had my heroes. Well, you know, I remember... Going down to collect autographs, I never did get any real famous autographs. Matter of fact, if I still had the autographs that I collected one day at MacArthur Court in Eugene, I couldn't even read them. Because we were allied with the Russians in those days. And during World War II, when I was about, oh, 11 or 12, maybe 13, we were down there for a basketball game. And the special halftime entertainment was the Cossacks. And they were dancers that got down on their knees and did all these fantastic kicks. And if you've seen them with their red and black, with the black knee-length boots and their big uh, beaver hats or whatever they are doing these kicks, I mean, you couldn't do that. I couldn't. You'd fall down. They've got to have power of the legs to do that. I was so excited, I ran backstage and got a whole bunch of those guys to sign my program. And I couldn't read their names, wouldn't know who they are. They're probably long since dead today anyway. But I think like anybody else, I was a little bit infatuated with people that you would see in the public eye, and I was somewhat of a hero worshiper. How many times have you seen the following setting? A very close basketball game, maybe for the national finals or a state championship, 
and it just seesawed back and forth. The lead changes hands about nine times. It's one point and one point and one point. Finally, in double overtime, somebody sinks about a 35-foot shot, touches nothing but the bottom of the net, and the home team wins by one point. And then even the police can't control them. It's absolute bedlam. Now, I've seen this with my own eyes in person. I've also seen it close up on television. And my, my memory is very vivid. Like the one fan who rushes down there just overcome with adulation and love and excitement. The one goal in life is to grab this sweating, perspiring basketball player and to hug him. If you can, kiss him. Grab a piece of his clothing. Take his shoe off. Maybe jump in his lap and ask him to carry you to the locker room. I don't even know what's going through the minds of a fan. Now, the fan, the word fan is short, and this is the truth, is short for fanatic. That's what it really means. It, it really is short for fanatic. Now, you're familiar with the fact that a soccer war got started in Central America. Right over a soccer game, two nations went to war about seven or eight years ago. You're familiar that only about a year or so ago in Belgium, British fans against the Italians were creating such a ruckus that they literally trampled a whole lot of people to death, and dozens died because of the ferocity and the intensity of emotion of people getting caught up in a ball game or a soccer game. So the scene that I'm painting, and I remember so vividly, the guy rushes down through the cordon of police, and he gets out there to just about to seize his basketball player. The basketball players are scared. They're frightened. The coach is afraid. They're running for the locker room. But this one fan grabs the, the great big seven-foot star. Whop! And with an elbow, he just about crushes his jaw. He just hammers the guy in the face fights to get rid of him, and disappears into the locker room. The fan is standing there. He's got a couple of loose teeth. His lips are shredded, and he's bleeding. Moments before, he adores this person. Now he's bleeding, and he doesn't adore him anymore. He's very upset. He's Have you ever seen a picture? you ever seen a scene like that in your life where a fan would literally jump on a football player and get a solid blow to the chops as his reward? I have. I've seen it more than once. I don't know if, uh, if I'm just different from most people. I suppose once in a great while I make a mistake and I do attend the morning worship hour, but most of the time when it comes on, I try to turn it off or I go to the other room or I go about my business or take my walk or I, I get ready to come to work. But the morning worship hour is on practically any, well, it's morning, noon, and night worship hour on television. It's on Good Morning America. It's on the Today Show. It's on Our Magazine. It's on Entertainment Tonight. It's on practically every interview-type show, and it's on many, many television shows. Now, the reason I call it the Morning Worship Hour is that they interview almost nonstop. Every week when it comes on Monday, they will tell you who's going to appear there. Kirk Douglas is going to be there. Uh, Brooke Shields is going to be there. Oh, wow. And then they tell you all the names of the people during the week, and they're going to interview them. So they get them there, and they sit them down. Now, Kirk, how does it feel to have your own son directing you in a movie? Oh, it's tough. It's really rough. i got to punch a hole in my chin while I talk. It's really tough to have your own boy telling you what to do. But And then, Brooke, you know, is it really difficult for you with your own mother as a manager? Now, see, I caught you. You already want to know. Don't you want to know the answer to that? Is it really difficult for her mother to be her manager? And you hear these people, they're married or they're divorced, sometimes several times. And the 
interviewer will ask about the difficulty of being away from their homes. Here they got about, you know, six homes and about three Rolls Royces, Maserati, Ferrari, and a Mercedes. And they go skiing in Switzerland, and they go yachting in the Bahamas, and they have a private airplane. But they have a rough life. It's really tough to live the way these people do. So the interviewers continually want to delve into every little personal detail they possibly can. Barbara Walters is paid, I understand now. She started out when she changed from the uh, format that she had with Harry Reasoner as being an anchor in the news to get on to special interviews and was paid at that time $750,000 a year and is now making more than $1 million a year for a handful of interviews where she will go into people's homes, very, very famous people, and then try to go just, it's a little bit of one-upmanship, try to go a little deeper, try to get a little more intimate, try to get just a little more of a response out of some of these people, to get behind their guard, to get really down digging deep inside their private lives, and for that she is paid a fortune and the ratings go soaring right out the top because Americans just die to learn the little details of people whose faces they see on the tube, on television. Now, we're really a crazy people, we Americans. We have a fascination with the medium of television or motion pictures. You could have a family sitting in a living room. In the other room would be a video. And here is a camera. And they could be sitting here, but if they knew there's a monitor in the next room, the family would get up and leave you if you're talking into the camera and go in the next room and watch it. And I'm just kidding, maybe, but I mean, sometimes I wonder about that. Instead of sitting there watching you, they'd really prefer to go in the next room and watch it in the box to watch it on television. Now, what I'm about to relate is a natural emotion. It's probably a bad emotion. It's one that I wish people didn't have, certainly where I'm concerned. And yet it's natural, and I've, I've understood it, and I've had to deal with it for many, many years. Because having been on this medium now, radio and television, for 30 solid years of my life, I've run across this a great deal. People have come running up to me in almost the same way. Literally, people will come up to me, and here I am, a minister of Jesus Christ, trying to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God as a witness and a warning to the world, preaching various doctrines, preaching prophecies, preaching about world conditions. And you know, the people will actually come up and say, this is my very first opportunity to meet a celebrity. Celebrity? I'm a celebrity? Me? I never heard of such a thing. Why am I a celebrity? Simply because they stick a camera in front of my face and I'm talking about Christ and about the Bible and about the future and the world, but they come up and they're just overcome. Many times in my life I've had people come up to me and literally be unable to talk, overcome with emotion and simply grab my hand and cry. Now it's normal, it's natural, but I want to talk about it for a moment. If I were to ask each one of you, and we would have to conceal the portion of the wall or the board that we would put up over here from you so you couldn't see it, to go over there and to just puzzle for a minute and make a mark of exactly what you believe was the height of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, each one of you would make a mark on a new board. You wouldn't see the board or the paper that the other person made a mark on. Everybody in the room, including kids and all of tall people, short people, we'd go over with a big old crayon, make a mark about exactly where we think that would be his height. You know, that would probably vary two feet. Some people would think that he'd be about five, six. Other people would make him about, you know, six, nine or something. But, but it may be not that much, but it would vary, I'm sure, quite a good deal. It would vary probably about that much or more, maybe two, two and a half feet.
Now, if each of you were to sit down with a composite drawer, a police artist who would try, as they do when they're trying to apprehend a criminal, and they interrogate witnesses, and they say now, and they have hundreds of, of eyebrows and noses and lips, you know, and they, they have these plastic overlays, and they'll simply, and you've seen it done in the movies, I'm sure, and they say, well, it did look a lot, because there's certain types. There are certain facial types and characteristics. There are long faces and round ones and, and pear-shaped and, and weird square ones and all this type of thing, but they, uh, they get different eyebrows and noses, and they try to get a composite drawing so that they can publish it in the newspaper, and people will know who they're looking for. If each of us sat down with a police artist for hours and had him sketch a picture as we imagine the face of Jesus Christ, and then each of us just on the wall just put all these faces, it would look like a crowd not even related to each other, probably. I mean, there might not even be any, any familial trait. You might not be able to see any five or six of them that you could put into a group and look really kind of alike because we wouldn't have the faintest idea what he looks like. Now, maybe we would, somewhat closer than some people that we speak of out here that call themselves Christians. But the greatest hero in the history of the world, the man whose name is on the lips of everyone, and that means for good or for bad, is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. When I am out on the golf course, I hear people talking about Jesus Christ. Some of them have been in church on that very same morning. I know these people. They are my neighbors. I will hear them saying, as they miss a shot, that God, who is in heaven above, is not just an everyday God, but that he is an almighty God. But that's not the way they mean it, if you follow my drift. But they've been in church half of the morning. Then they come down there, and they're playing golf, and they are uttering the name of God. Now, I've never heard anyone pick a name like, Oh, Attle of a Hun. You know, when they miss a golf shot. Or, oh, Alexander the Great. Uh -huh. You know, and, and use that as a by word. They won't do that. They're going to use the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So on the one hand, you have millions of people who adore and who worship Jesus Christ. Allegedly, he is their hero. But they don't know very much about him. They don't know who he was. Was he God or was he a man? Or was he both? Was he a human being, but somehow God-man or man-God? Was he, as some people say, a mushroom? Was he an imposter? Was he Superman, like Superman from Krypton, who had strange powers? Was he a visitor from outer space? There are great disputes about his birth, or even disputes about the birth of his mother. Was she immaculately conceived? Or does the Immaculate Conception have to do with Christ's conception? The Catholics revere Mary, and some say that even they claim that she was immaculately conceived. Now, if that was necessary to make Christ's birth immaculate, then why not her mother, and her mother before her, and all the way back for generations, in order to make sure that the birth of Jesus Christ could not in any way be contaminated by the normal human method of reproduction? Some people want it to be so holy and so perfect that the idea of it having any remote connection with normal human birth is anathema to them. Now, for many, many years I've said that there are many arguments about Jesus Christ. They don't know when he was born. He wasn't on or anywhere near December 25th. Under what circumstances. They don't know what race he belonged to, how tall he was, what was his flesh tone, what was his hair color, 
What did his nose or what did his eyes look like? Was he brown-eyed, blue-eyed? Was he hazel or slightly green? Uh, were his eyes slate gray? Uh, was his hair curly or straight? Was he tall or short or medium? Was he stocky or slim? Uh, was he perfectly formed or sort of long and lanky? Did he walk with a fluid grace or did he kind of clump along like a person that was used to moving heavy timbers and great stones? What was the way of him? What did he look like? What would he have been like if you had been with him? And what did he teach? What was his message? And what about his personal life? What little habits did he have? What was the first thing he did when he got up? What about bathing, washing his teeth? What about when he was thinking about preparing food or the way he lay down and went to sleep? How would he have talked to you under certain circumstances? How much time in your life have you taken to think through a person called Jesus Christ of Nazareth as if he were literally a real being who walked this earth for 33 and one half years, who occupied his own little space of good green planet earth, who ate all of the fruits and vegetables and meats and drank all the water that a normal 33 and a half year old would have consumed in that lifespan, who underwent all of the trials and temptations of which we read in the Bible. How much time have you in your own mind, just in meditation, in introspective thought, tried to come up with a picture in your mind of the man, the person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth? You know, Moses had a rare opportunity. He was just overcome with curiosity because he had been called of God by a burning bush. And he'd heard a voice, been told to take his shoes off, and he'd heard this great thundering voice. Well, it was a long time later, and finally he actually approached the mount, and once again he heard and saw great earthquakes and roiling black smoke and heard this great thunderous voice and was delivered in the hands of an angel who may have appeared to him. It says in the Bible, these sculpted stones as if they were chiseled but done by the hand or the finger of God and carried them back down the mount to the Israelites and didn't know when he was talking to them about all that had happened on the mount that his face was glowing. And they looked at him, and his face had a kind of a translucent hue. It just shone until finally they couldn't steadfastly look upon his face and began to mutter about it. And Aaron perhaps fashioned some kind of a cloth, almost like the ladies over in Iran would wear. And they actually had to cover Moses' face with a kind of a gauze so that his face would not shine and radiate the way it did from having been in the presence of God. Let's turn to Exodus 33 and verse 7. Exodus 33 and beginning in verse 7, and take a look at what Moses attempted to do. He had had several encounters now with this great being, and remember that John, the first chapter, and the first chapter of the book of Hebrews tells us that this individual of the God family with whom Moses was dealing is the individual who became Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It says, beginning in verse 7, Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that every one which sought the eternal went out under the tabernacle of the congregation, which was outside of the camp. And it came to pass, when Moses went out into the tabernacle, all the people rose up and stood. They would look down this vast veil, and they were up along tiers of small hills, and they could see Moses, a little dim figure, disappearing until finally the tent flap opened up, and that distant figure disappeared inside the tabernacle. When he would enter, they would see a great 
whirling pillar of cloud, almost like a perpetual burning cloud, but looking almost like a miniature tornado, just writhing and like a pillar of smoke that hovered in the air. And it seemed to come down and settle right on and stand at the very door of the tabernacle once Moses went inside. And they saw this every day for forty solid years. Day and night. By night, it looked like fire and flame, and they could see it. And by day, it looked like a pillar of cloud. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. They got up. They either stood and bowed their heads, or they got on their knees and bowed toward that tabernacle and began to pray to God, and they worshipped. They showed that they were humbling themselves by their physical posture of bowing and facing that tabernacle. And the eternal God, the one who became Christ, talked, spoke to Moses face to face. Now, a marginal reference would take you to 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, to John 1, 18, and to some other scriptures which very plainly say in Christ's own words, you have neither seen his face nor heard his voice, meaning the Father, at any time. And also, we will read a little later on, that no man has ever seen Almighty God when he was glorified as God face to face. So it is saying that he spoke unto him face to face, but Moses was beholding, perhaps through obscurity, a cloud or a great brightness within a cloud, but he could not literally see facial features. And he turned again to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. And Moses said to the Eternal, See, you say to me, bring up this people, in other words, bring them out of Egypt, and you have not let me know whom you will send with me, yet you have said, I know you by name. You said, you know me, you knew about me when I was a baby boy, you have known about me from before my birth, you have known everything about me, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now your way, meaning, show me what you look like. Show me what you're like. Show me the way of you, would be an English expression. That I may know thee. I want to see you. And isn't that normal? Isn't that natural? Wouldn't you want to see, to understand what a great being like this looked like? That I might find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And God answered and said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto me, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that you go with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth, meaning we will be unique, we will be a chosen people for a special commission. And the Eternal said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that you have spoken, because you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Eternal before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What an incredible statement. God has said, and it's repeated in the book of Hebrews, quote, For I will be merciful unto them, saith the Lord Eternal, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, we have series on television and motion pictures like Star Wars. 
And some of the evil heroes are named Darth Vader, or Tron, or Glog, or Snurd, or Snork. And they got these weird-looking creatures with a huge beak and one eye in the middle of their face and tentacles, you know, for, or claws for hands. And they're even doing this in electronic games for children to go down and play where there's one that is Satan, and Satan has fire that comes down and he just burns you up. I will never play one of those fool games. I want to play one electronic game that I can play fairly well, and that is Pac-Man, and that, that's kind of bad because that's showing this grotesquely fat woman. She's so fat you can't even see her legs. She just got a great big round mouth, all she got, and she just gobbles monsters and gobbles up little melons and squares and everything and goes around gobbling everything. But I will not play a game because I'm not going to lose if you follow my reasoning. I'm not sticking in a quarter, and then I get my men, and then Satan burns them up. There's no way Garner Ted is going to let Satan beat me, even in an electronic game. So I won't do that. But just stop to think about it for a minute. We're sitting here on the Sabbath day in Tyler, Texas, human beings all, just as susceptible to an immediate head-on automobile crash or the explosion of a gas main, or to a tanker truck going by us and a spark setting it off and disappearing in a pink mist, exactly as did seven astronauts a few days ago, and we all pray, God, that they never felt a thing and that they absolutely just disintegrated. They were alive one moment, going through their routine, their hearts beating and pumping, and all exhilarated, and the next instant, quicker than I can even bat an eye, they were just gone into smithereens, and that they didn't suffer they didn't glide slowly down, horribly injured, knowing what was going to happen. They were just gone. All right? We're human beings. Our lives depend upon, as we know, the food we ingest and our hearts beating away and the water we drink and the air we breathe. And we hear about a great creature, a great being up here called God. The other day I attended a funeral. There in a casket was the inert form, emaciated, having lost a great deal of weight, utterly still unable to feel, unable to have any of the great passions or emotions of the past, my human father who gave me life. He is and is slowly, right beside, within touching distance that they could reach through the walls of the coffin, my mother returning to the soil from whence he came. I, Garner Ted Armstrong, am a human physical being, planet Earth, and my life depends upon the ingestion of this Earth's life-giving gases and water and food just like yours does and depends upon my heart and all of my vital internal organs functioning just like yours does and I am just as susceptible to instant death or to painful death through a stroke or a heart attack or some disease like uh, leukemia or cancer, the big C they say, that is going to take uh, half of the lives of Americans living today, about 50% of our populace is going to die by cancer, and that'll be the main reason that they do die instead of living up to a ripe old age of 93 and a half or so and dying in their sleep. But out here in the blackness of this great universe toward which men reach, toward which we aspire, in, into which we look, and our space probes going by far off planets learning brand new things like brand new moons around planets that we never even knew before, fabulous new information, we believe, or I don't think we would be here, that there is a creature out there, a being out there, called God. Now, what if that God were not like the God that we read of in the Bible, but he were like Darth Vader? What if he were like Tron, or Glarg, or Grog, or whatever he is? 
and he had sixteen arms and a great beak and one eye, and he just rawr, devours people. Did you ever think about it? You know of a great creature and a great being out in heaven called God. And that God reveals himself to you in the Bible, the Word of God, through the express stamped image of himself made in your likeness and your exact similitude. And he says, as he comes into this earth in the human form, I look like you do, and you look like I do. Now, here you are, a human being with a normal range of emotions, some of them bad, some of them good, and believe it or not, human nature is not the nature of Satan the devil. It isn't all bad. It isn't all good. It is a mixture of both. There is the potential for both. Adam and Eve were neutral toward God until the time that they disobeyed God, and then they were fearful and became hostile and suspicious and doubting, and all of the uh, worst part or the baser part of human nature began to prevail over the good part. There's a little bit of good in the worst of us, and there's a great deal of bad in the best of us. There was a little tiny bit of good, believe it or not, in Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler could be kind to animals. He probably loved very much some few people close to him. Little Gailey, who was his niece, he had a weird affair with, apparently. It absolutely broke his heart when he, because he was an autocrat, ordered her uh, to stay where she was in Austria, and she committed suicide, and he became absolutely destitute, and it just broke his heart. Adolf Hitler was an absolute monster, as we know. And yet, somehow, in his twisted, perverted mind, believe it or not, there were some little emotions that could be good. Believe it or not, even Adolf Hitler, in the great resurrection at the end of the millennium, will very likely have an opportunity. Who knows? I don't know what is in God's judgment and what God intends. Is there some uh, ultimate crime? Uh, is it a greater crime with God? I mean, so far that he will withdraw salvation under any circumstances if you kill 16 people, 26 people, or 26,000 people, or 2,650,000 people. Murder is murder, so I don't even want to get into that because I honestly don't know. I'm glad that it's God that is going to judge that and make that decision and not me. So God sends Jesus Christ in the likeness of we struggling human beings and says, this is what I am like. Now, God says right here to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he reveals himself as a gracious God, as a merciful God, as a loving and a kind, a good God. He's not a bad God. He's not a hostile God. He's not unforgiving. He's not short-tempered. He's not immediately, instantly wrathful. But he does have his limits. He can be pushed a little bit too far. He has been known to be capable of wrath, but only when he's pushed too far. Most of the time, he really wants to dispense love and mercy. But when you push him too far, finally, God can become angry and he can become wrathful. And he reveals his attitude toward us through his son, Jesus Christ, and in all of the many examples he gives us in the Bible. So he said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. I don't know why that is. I don't fathom that. I can only reach at it. I can imagine it's because of our innate unworthiness and because of our absolute inability to look upon such incredible beauty, such incredible glory, such brilliant perfection without it 
taking our lives. That's all I can deal with. I can only say we're not fit. Moses wasn't fit, but he said, because I found grace in your sight, because you seem to know me by name, and in order that the people will believe me, give me the extra encouragement. Let me see what you look like. Let me know the way of thee. And he said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you'll stand here upon a rock. You get back in this cleft of a rock, in a rocky place, in a mountain. It shall come to pass, while my glory passes by, I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away my hand after he's passed by, and you shall see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. And what did Moses see? Well, we don't know exactly the height or whether there was any clothing, but he saw what appeared to be the back of a human form walking away from him, and probably in a brilliant gold-like glow of some sort, but we can only conjecture what it was that Moses was allowed to see. But Moses was given that encouragement. Over in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 15 is a scripture that gives us a little bit of an additional insight. This was the one, remember, who became Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It is not the individual who is God the Father whom Christ came to reveal. We're breaking into the middle of a thought about Jesus Christ, verse 14, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only has immortality. We are not born with it. God only has immortality. Dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. God's heaven is so brilliant that it's like many times the brightness of our sun, and no man can approach unto it. Whom no man has seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Now, Jesus Christ came, it says in the book of Hebrews, and I'll turn just over past Titus to the book of Hebrews a little bit, in the first chapter, and became made like unto a man, like a son of Abraham, like a member of the family of Judah, and he was an ordinary, everyday, average-looking Jew, and we can prove that. God, who at sundry times and in different ways or manners spake in the times past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last times... Now, the way God looks at time, you've got to go back and realize that, first of all, geologists, archaeologists, astronomers tell us that this world and all of our own immediate solar system is approximately four and one-half billion years of age. That may be fairly accurate. But the elements of the earth from which our present solar system were made are much, much more ancient than that. So if you look at all history the way God measures time, and how does God measure time? Well, that's such a vast subject, Einstein probably couldn't figure it out, because distance is time and time is distance. Time and space are one and the same thing, measured by the journey of certain astral bodies through the heavens and measured by our ability to stave off the aging process from the moment we reach maturity until we die. And so we deal in lengths like inches and feet and meters and yards and months and minutes and seconds and days and years, but God is not bound by these human finite limitations. So far as God is concerned, the advent of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to this earth, the changing from that God life into a human baby who was born of a virgin and came to walk this earth among humankind, has happened very, very late in the history of this environment in which we live. Every time I see something new about our solar system, 
as I saw those huge swirling clouds on Mars, the great gaseous clouds, as we look at, at Venus and learn a little bit more about the atmosphere, the Venusian, Venusian, I guess I should say, atmosphere of the gases that are there, Halley's Comet, and all of the fantastic things that are out there, and then realize that every other star out there probably has captured in its own gravitational field many, many planets with their moons, and that each, each star is only one out of 200 billion billion stars in each galaxy, of which there are billions and hundreds of billions of galaxies. Well, it just boggles your mind, and every time I try to talk about the universe, I just reach my limits, and I just retreat, and I say it's easier to talk about how far it is from here to the loop, because that's something I can understand. But when you start talking about the universe, it just leaves me, and I'm just left with my mouth open, and I really don't know what I'm talking about. Now, Almighty God has a purpose for every one of those great orbital beings, or, or orbital, uh, we can't call them a satellite, but a great star or a planet out there in the universe. It says in the Bible that he calls them all by name. He comes down here, appoints a son, verse 2, has in these last times spoken unto us by, the word his, notice, is italicized. It shouldn't be there. It should be a son, by son, but actually is a son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. In Romans 8.17, Romans 8.17 says that we are joint heirs with Christ, that we are co-heirs with him, by whom also, through whom he made the ages, the universe, and all of time, who being the brightness of his glory. Now, Moses wanted to see his glory. He wanted to see his brightness. He wanted to see how beautiful he was, what he looked like. It says here in the Bible that Jesus was the brightness of his glory. Now, the other day we had a alleged uh, robbery foiled out at Emerald Bay. Somebody was shot in the leg. I don't really believe the story, but I'll never know the truth of that. I think somebody was playing with a gun, shot himself in the leg, made up a story about a robber running away. But you know, when the police go to investigate a crime, they deal with witnesses. And if they can get an eyewitness, someone whose memory is pretty fresh, who saw someone that was so striking that he has an indelible impression. Now, at a time of great stress, at a time of great danger or great triumph, great excitement, you will notice that something happens to your mind. You don't need to have mind-altering or perception-altering drugs to cause this to occur. I can pick certain things out of my background, out of my life, when I was in the Navy. I can remember exactly what happened when John Kennedy was killed. I remember exactly what I was doing and the color of the bluing in the sink when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and I was only 11 years of age. There are certain great events that cause your heart to beat and the old adrenal gland to squirt some fluids into your brain and some of your vital organs to just give your whole uh, psyche a quickening and somehow to indelibly impress in your brain. The colors are more vivid. The impressions are more vivid. They seem to be impressed in your mind more deeply so that thousands of other little impulses and thoughts of the past are just all forgotten and just kind of go their way. But at certain stressful or great moments in your life, Certain things are almost like a vision. They just are impressed so deeply upon you, you will never forget them. So they want to ask an eyewitness, give me a description. What was he wearing? Did you get the license number? What kind of a car? All right, it says here that this great God that inhabits the universe came down here in human physical flesh. And even though he denied to Moses the ability to look upon his face, this time this same being who in his glory would not let Moses look upon him, 
comes down and walks on this earth and says that he was the brightness of his glory, of God's glory, and the express image, and the Greek word is K-A-R-A-K-T-E-R, from which we take character, meaning stamped impress. You know how the word character is used for a letter of the alphabet, a character of the alphabet? Because it's a figure, and when you stamp it, like in cuneiform or into wax, or you stamp it in soft wood or in metal, it is making a character, the stamped impress of God's figure, of his visage, and of his character was Jesus Christ of Nazareth, an exact shadow image, you might say, an exact copy, an exact similitude. He was the express image of his person, of his personality. It says in the margin, his substance. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He did this by himself. He came down to this earth and he purged our sins. Now, how much are you willing to take the word of an eyewitness? Does that mean anything to you at all? Let's go to Second Peter and look at verse 12. Just past Hebrews a little bit. Second Peter in the first chapter, beginning in verse 12. Peter says, talking to those to whom he wrote concerning his own personal experiences that he recalls very, very well. Remember what I said about those great heightened occasions of your life when Peter was being asked by Jesus, Do you love me, Peter? When he was standing there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and Christ walked down the sands and disappeared from his sight and said, If you love me, feed my lambs three times over that dinner of fish when they'd been out there and Peter was naked and they were fishing and he said, Try the other side. And Peter flung himself headlong into this lake and then swam furiously ashore. And that was the last time he ever saw Christ. You think that those weren't indelibly impressed in his memory? He said, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, in verse 10, well, I'll read verse 12, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the, pleasant, in the present truth. Yea, I think it fitting, or meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, as long as I am alive, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, to remind you, to stir up your memory, to make it more vivid in your mind knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, meaning he knew he was going to die. It's a metaphor, a metaphorical expression for the fact that he knew he was going to die. Even as our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me. Remember what he said when Peter asked what's going to happen to John? And Christ indicated right there the time is going to come when they're going to lead you and take you to a place where you would not. Tradition says Peter was crucified upside down. We don't know the truth of that. But Peter somehow knew the time was getting close. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease. What was the most urgent thing on his mind when Peter knew he was going to die? It was to stir up their memory and to endeavor that their memory would always be vivid even after he died and to give them, to leave them, Peter's first person eyewitness experience with Jesus Christ. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. He said, I'm not a charlatan. I'm not a fake. I haven't made this up. It isn't cute little quips and cunning fables. It isn't clever verbiage. It isn't rhetoric. 
We haven't followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They saw him every day and every night for three and a half years. Peter had seen him probably several times before he was called because Jesus lived in that area. And if you know the truth of it, he knew the sons of Zebedee. He knew Peter and Andrew. He knew some of the disciples of John. He knew some of these people because he lived there. It was just that the time had not come for him to reveal himself as the Messiah. And by the time he began calling his disciples, he already knew who these men were. He knew their families and background. He had prayed mightily. He had asked his father to reveal whom his disciples ought to be. He didn't just walk along and say, oh, there's one. You come and follow me, the way a lot of people think, through a superficial reading of the Bible. Read my book, The Real Jesus, and also the one called Peter's Story that I want to put out in paperback under a different name sometime. But read that again and get a little more of a picture of what that must have been like. They were eyewitnesses of all those experiences with Christ. Now, Christ was an everyday Jew. We know in the 52nd and 3rd chapters of Isaiah it said that he has no form nor comeliness that when we see him we should desire him. Time and again he escaped out of the hands of a mob, first in his own city of Nazareth, when they were going to throw him over a hill, when he made the famous statement this day, is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, when he quoted a passage out of Isaiah, and they said, because he had said that during the days of Nahum and the Syrian, that the Elisha, the prophet, had been sent only to one person, and he was a Gentile, that that made them so furious, because he knew that, or they knew that Jesus was rebuking them for rejecting his message. And when he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ear, it made them so furious they wanted to kill him. Well, he was right there. They were all wearing, however, the similar type robes. They were all in a sort of a melee, a lot of furor. Probably several people stumbled and fell in the crush of people. And the disciples gathered around him, and they all looked fairly similar. And somehow they just, in a throng, ushered him back out of that area. And even in spite of the fact they wanted to kill him, they couldn't determine which one was which. Now, you know, they wore, we have parkas which will have a kind of a zipper which will have a hood you can pull out and put over your face. Well, their robes had a kind of a hood, and they could put a hood over their face. And, of course, Arabs still wear similar type garb today with a kind of a cloth that they can cover their face against the dust or the sand of the Araba when it blows. And so time and again, in the temple a couple of times, in Nazareth, Jesus would escape out of the, out of the midst of a crowd, even when they were right there and they were obviously aware of who he was in, in, before the melee got started, but suddenly they couldn't find him because of all of the confusion. So obviously he was not a standout. He didn't look like Saul did, head and shoulders taller than all the rest of the people. They couldn't tell exactly what he looked like. And yet Peter said that they were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, and Peter was there and heard it, at his baptism, at the baptism of Christ, when a dove seemed to light on him, and they heard a great voice shaking the heavens, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That was an angelic voice, by the way, if you want to be technical. Not the voice of God the Father, maybe Gabriel, maybe Michael. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount, talking about the transfiguration, when he was given a little bit of a vision of the kingdom of God. Now, what more of a witness do you want? Sure, the Bible's an ancient book, but this is first-person testimony. This is from the pen of the individual who lived it. He was there. He saw it. He could write a far better police composite drawing than you could. He could walk to the wall with his crayon and make a mark and tell you just about exactly how tall Jesus was. If the police artist could put together all the facial features, Peter would say, that's him, 
That's what he looked like. We can't do that. But Peter could have. James could have. Bartholomew, Simon, John, Andrew, any of them could have. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, and we will conclude with this one because we're getting within five minutes at the end of the tape. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Now, here's the place where the gospel is portrayed, and I've told you about this many, many times. But again, look at what the gospel is and what it must include. Which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed it all in vain. Because I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Here is that great God life that created the universe, and his one life is worth more than several times the population of this earth. How do you know that? Well, because he can do it all over again. Because by the snap of God's fingers, you could see our blue planet, it's called, disintegrate as quickly as that shuttle did the other day. If our God was known as Grog or Tron, if he was not a God that said, I will be merciful unto their sins, and I will remember them never again for all eternity, I will remove their sins as far as the east is removed from the west, I will forgive, I will love. These are my people. They're made in my image. I love them. I'm going to forgive them for the sake of my servant Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of my son, Jesus Christ, a handful of good men. I'm going to save all of humanity. He could say, I'm going to explode it, I'm going to disintegrate it, I'm going to kill them all. Start all over again. Go out there to Venus and park the clouds and go down and kneel by a creek and make himself a man and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life like blowing up a balloon and say, your name is Adam. Start all over again. He proposed to start over again to Moses. He said, Let me alone, that I may destroy them in a moment. And Moses said, Oh, Lord God, remember your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What will the Gentiles say? What will the heathen say? And he argued, and he reasoned, and he pled with God. And God said, I repent, therefore, of the evil. And God changed his mind, or he would have destroyed Israel, and all of us that are Israelites would never have been born because Moses would have then been the progenitor of a brand new race of people, and God didn't propose that lightly. It took Moses' intervention. It took Moses as a type of Christ in that moment who was praying to the Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Moses was like a figure or a type of Jesus Christ praying for the salvation of humanity, or God would have destroyed all of Israel at that moment. So, he died for our sins because his one life is worth more than all of ours put together many times over. Many times the population of earth, that precious life, is worth all of our lives many times over. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Kephas or Peter then of the twelve, and after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. Now, if you can put yourself into that time, you're sitting there in Corinth, someone is standing up there, one of the ministers is reading, a new missive has arrived from the Apostle Paul, and he's saying, I saw him, and five hundred other people did, and most of them are still alive. They're getting up there, they're a little elderly, you can go and check with them. 
You know, you would have been living in an immediate, instant time where you could collect a whole group of eyewitnesses who could make all the police composite drawings you'd want to have and could tell you exactly what he looked like, could remember the tone of his voice, could remember how he would have acted around a dinner table, how he laughed, how he sneezed, how he cried, would have remembered everything about him, would have known him intimately, and could have communicated to you exactly the kind of a person he was. Our Bible, the Word of God, is a first-person eyewitness record of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Let's not keep using the excuse that he lived so long ago that we can't know him, that we can't know what he was like, that we can't study every conceivable little nuance of his behavior, of the kind of a person he was. And then, maybe, we will come to true hero worship, the difference being that the time when we burst through the throng and rush up to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus Christ because we can't stand not to get next to him, to grab hold of his feet, he's not going to give us an elbow. He's going to pick us up and put his arm around us and say, I know, I understand, I love you too.